We've been spending time looking at a letter. Um, It's the last letter written by a man named Paul. Paul was, well, we know him as Paul the Apostle, Paul the Missionary, Paul the great statesman of this new faith that is now making inroads into the Roman Empire, all across the Roman Empire. And Paul's writing to a young man named Timothy. And Paul's at the end of his life. Paul is, in fact, in prison. And uh, his death is probably imminent, death by execution at the hands of Nero Caesar. And um, the question is, is raised as you, as you listen to these words. And the, and the question, I think, for all of us as we think about um, generational relationships is what exactly is he handing off? What is Paul giving to Timothy? What does one generation have to hand off to another generation? Especially as we talk about matters of faith. What is this that's, that's handed off? What is it that's passed along? What is it that must be rediscovered in a fresh way by every new generation? Well, let me tell you what he's not handing off. At least it's not of primary importance. It would be incidental. He's not ha- handing off um, a tradition that must be followed now because it's traditional. He's not handing off the keys to an institution, an organization, that must be run in the same way it's been run. He's not handing that off. He's handing something else off. Something that is much deeper, much more powerful, and much more relevant to Timothy than even Timothy knows at this moment. And uh, as you think about that, I want you to think about that in terms of your own life. I want you to think about that in terms of your, your own faith and your own faith development. What is it that's being handed to you and what is it that you're willing to take, that you're able to take? What is it that's so, so important that there's a letter in the Bible that talks about this handing off experience? We'll go to 2 Timothy chapter 1 because we want to look at it again. And we're going to look at these verses and we're going to again begin a little bit earlier than maybe what is written, but we're going to start in the middle of verse 9, and we'll pick up this theme, because this is what, in fact, is being handed off, and this is what we need more than we know. The grace, this grace, was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to, to light through the gospel. And of this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed, because I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching, with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. What is being handed off from Paul to Timothy, from one generation to the next, and what needs to be continually handed off is something called grace. I wonder what that word means to you. I wonder if that term is um, compelling for you. Grace. What is grace? How do you experience grace? 
Well, grace is the prayer you say before dinner, right? That's grace. Well, yes, I suppose it might be, but is it necessarily just because you put words to a prayer doesn't mean that you are experiencing grace. Grace is something that happens deep inside you and comes from a long way off. Grace begins in the heart of God. It comes from the heart of God. And this grace was from before the beginning, as Paul describes it. So whatever it is, it was God's purpose all along. And whatever it is, you can't work to create it or deserve it or earn it because it's already there. You're going to have to do something with it, but it was decided a long time ago that this was the orientation of God himself, an orientation of grace, of of love, of loving kindness, of love that isn't earned, that um, love that, that, that isn't about working hard to get there and working hard to prove yourself and working hard to audition for it. It is an attitude inside of God. It is a disposition of God. It is in the very character of God to show this grace, whatever this grace is. It's something we all long for, every one of us longs for this grace, religious or irreligious, Christian or not a Christian. You long for this, long for the acceptance that is implied by this, that someone would just take you right where you are and embrace you with all of the issues and all of the problems and all the history and all the baggage and all the doubts that you have about yourself and everything else going on around you, in the midst of the chaos, that someone would single you out and focus on you and give you his unconditional love. We're all longing for that because we were wired for that, because we were destined for that. We were made for that purpose. And at the very same time, we have to acknowledge we all resist it for a whole lot of reasons. We resist it because... Having longed for it, we missed it. Having longed for it and someone else promised it and they didn't deliver it and so we're disappointed and that disappointment converts to cynicism. And so we want it, but we've given up on it. I wonder if that describes you. We want this love. The only, the only thing we really ultimately need is to be accepted right where we are. We can face everything else, and we can face all the challenges that come at us if we have an experience of this grace. But we resist it. And yet there are rumors of it. There are hints dropped all over the place. There are, there are reasons to believe it might still be there. And if we have even a little bit of hope, then we keep going after it. Mother Teresa, the, uh, the missionary in India, who was known for going after and ministering to the poorest of the poor, and who traveled the world and started a movement around the world, and her sisters of charity are now all around the world in many, many countries, even though Mother Teresa is no longer with us. And if you watch the documentary on her life called simply Mother Teresa, done by the BBC... There's a scene in there in where she's in Beirut, Lebanon. And this is back in the 1980s when there was a kind of civil war going on in, in Beirut, Lebanon, in, in, in all of Lebanon, and not unlike what's going on in Syria right now, if you want to picture something that's very similar. 
And in this scene, she is with a number of men who are officials from the church, from the hierarchy. And they are talking about the fact that they have just discovered that there is a hospital across the green line in the Muslim sector of of the city that has been abandoned by all its staff. There are no adults there. And uh, there are 100-plus disabled children there, and they won't survive very long without any help. And so she is proposing that they go across the green line, no matter the state of warfare in the city, and make a rescue effort. And they're all talking, um, they're they're discussing that, and they're all arguing against it. And she's saying, well, we have to go, we have to mobilize, and she's got a plan. And the man sitting next to her in this scene, it's a documentary, it's happening in real time, almost pats her on the head. He doesn't quite do it, but he reaches over to her and in the most condescending of language says, there, there, I know that you care deeply about these children, but you don't understand how it works in the real world. I can't imagine saying that to Mother Teresa, by the way. Don't know how it works in the real world. This is a military emergency. It is not safe to go out on the streets. We can't possibly go as long as this civil war is raging. And so we will not be going. How would you respond if you were Mother Teresa in that moment and this conviction was deep in your heart? And the grace of God, whatever that is, which has gripped you, will not let you go and will not let you give up on the needs of these children who literally will die in a matter of days if they're not cared for. And so she said, well, the Lord has called me to go, and so I will be going. Who's coming with me? Nobody raised their hands. And again, somebody argued against her and said, you can't possibly go, and uh, you cannot go without our approval. And we will not give you our approval until the bombs stop falling and the planes stop strafing. And so she said this, and I'm, I, I, if I were in her position and if I felt that deeply, I probably would get into a big argument and we'd you know, break out into a fist fight or something, inspired by the grace of God. <clears throat> but instead she simply said this, all right, I accept that, and I will pray to God that the bombs stop, and tomorrow morning, after the bombing has stopped, we will be going at 9 o'clock across the green line to the hospital to take care of these children. And the meeting was over. And how do you argue with that? How do you argue with that? In the next scene, it's the next morning, again, in real time, the photographer, you know, braving the war zone, The skies are quiet over Beirut. Imagine that. Just because she prayed. Just because of the grace of God. And she and her sisters, and there are only women there. You're looking for all of these men who were there in the meeting yesterday? They weren't there. It was just her and and a a bunch of others. And they cross the line, they get in their ambulances, and they go across the line, and it shows them walking up into the hospital. And they get into the hospital, and it's one of the most... Heartbreaking scenes that you can imagine as all of these children are now in a state of absolute panic because they've been abandoned. And there's one picture of one of her sisters, this young Indian minister, who walks over to a little boy who is thrashing about in total terror, who suffers from some combination of disabilities, who knows. And she picks him up And he fights her. 
and he's thrashing and he's kicking and he's swinging his arms wildly and fight and, and she just holds him and she absorbs the blows of this little boy and she begins to stroke his back and she begins to stroke his chest and his eyes are darting here and there everywhere he won't even look at her but eventually as you must know by now grace will have its way and have its effect and finally his eyes meet her eyes and he just relaxes into her love now you ask what does that have to do with me I'm not a little boy and I'm not disabled oh yes you are you're small and you're helpless in so many ways I know you puff up your chest. I know that you're professionally accomplished. I know that you're well-educated. But you are just as much in need of God's grace as that little boy. And you are fighting it. And I am fighting it just as hard. Because I'm scared. Because I've been disappointed by others who have abandoned me and betrayed me. Because I have longed for grace. A grace like this that really will meet my needs that I no longer believe in because I've given up hope. But God doesn't give up. God is relentless. He keeps coming after us with this great gift of grace. And how do you describe grace? There's, there's a lifetime of, of, of opportunity for us to learn about it, and even that won't be enough. Grace is this eternal love affair going on between the members of the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are constantly, joyfully loving one another. And grace starts right there. It sounds like it might be a theory. It sounds like it might be an idea. But it's actually all about a relationship. And then later on, a description of what is actually happening. It's a joyful love affair. That's where grace gets started. That's sort of... Um, the breeding ground of grace is an experience of it at that level. And that's been going on for all time. Don't think of God as a monolith, a singularity, all by itself in some remote part of the universe, like a, like a computer, you know, sending out directives to make things happen. God is more like a family. God is more like a community. And he inspires family and community. And he creates it and he extends it. And it's, it's, it's an expanding experience. And grace is also then a vision to take this experience and make it available to those who are on the outside. And grace suspends judgment. You see, if God knew me, you're thinking right now, um, there's no way he could ever show me grace. I mean, he wouldn't want to, sh he wouldn't want to have anything to do with me if God, well, he does know you. He does know all about you. He even knows he sees right through the delusions that you have, things that you don't even know about yourself, and still his heart is oriented toward this grace. This is who God is. God is love. This is what is being handed off from one generation to the next. And if it's not, then it's a fumble, and it has to be rediscovered. Because it's not a tradition, it's not an institution, it's not an organization. It's not even a book, though this book is the story. It's not just having this book in your hand. It's understanding the message of this book that's going to make a difference in your life. It's going to be worth taking. 
Not because you take it and put it on a shelf, but because the words get inside you and the love makes sense to you. And you dare to risk opening yourself up to what is called the grace of God. The Tree of Life, I don't know if you saw that film. Came out last year, got an Academy Award, several of them actually. And it makes a distinction between grace, because you see this, this longing is, is true for those of us who are Christian and those of us who would call ourselves secular. This grace is what we are longing for. There's grace and there's nature. Nature is the way things are. If you watch the movie, that's the theme. Nature is just the way things are, and you better accept it. You better be a realist and simply accept it. And it's a knockdown, drag out, Darwinian competition. And then there's grace. And grace always seems overmatched. It just seems like an ideal. Could it be true? Is it possible? And if God had any sense of who I am, I would be, I would be left out. I would be disqualified. I would forfeit any right I have to come and even seek after this grace. But God has suspended judgment because that's what grace does. It is full of kindness. It is full of mercy. And his heart is full of grace. And then grace has this determination to make every effort to come and find those who are the farthest away, who are the most lost. Now, Paul knows something about this. Paul the Apostle. That's a pretty lofty term, a pretty lofty title. Had a lot of authority, had a lot of uh, credibility among the Christians in that world. Paul calls himself in candid moments where he is really opening himself up, making himself vulnerable. He says, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the worst of the worst. I'm scum of the earth. So, of course, I believe in this grace because I need it, I've gotten it, and I can't help now but become desperate in my attempt to give this away. The grace of God. That little phrase, that little simple phrase, doesn't quite capture what it means until you dive down deep. Grace sends a Savior, Paul says. His name is Jesus, which means God saves. Grace sends a Savior. And this Savior destroys death which, of course, ruins everything. And not just death, literally death, physical death, the cessation of life, but demolishes every barrier that is between you and hope, between you and God. It's your sin, it's your guilt, it's the shame, and Paul uses that that term a lot. He says, I am not ashamed. Well, that's our natural state, is to live in shame, because we've been told often enough by lots of people, we don't quite measure up. And we may have measured up nine times out of ten, but what about that one time out of ten when you failed? You failed and got a B. You failed. And we labor under that, under that burden. We need a Savior who can destroy death, who can destroy all those barriers. And Jesus comes and as the epitome, the embodiment of of grace, embraces people who have no business thinking that they have any right to God's grace to God, to a relationship with God, to acceptance, to full acceptance by God. And then grace in Christ brings life, brings life and immortality. Just to let you know what kind of life we're talking about. We're talking about 
a life that is truly life, that is abundant life, as Jesus said as he tells his story in the Gospels. I've come to give life, and life abundant, and life that never ends, but life that begins right now. This life begins right now because this relationship begins right now because you've got God's grace right now. And Jesus comes up close and personal and says, here I am. I know who you are. I know where you've been. I know all about you. And I love you right where you are. And I've come to share the love that is in God's heart with you. What's your reaction when someone does that? I was on the steps of St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City one January day. And it was a light kind of a snowy day and the, the snow was falling. And I was standing there. I was actually teaching a class called the Urban Experience. And I needed a break from the class, from the students, and from the, all the rigmarole of New York City in Manhattan. And so I was standing there, and I was kind of enjoying the moment. It was kind of a beautiful, you know, picturesque scene there of, uh, of, of the city in the distance, and I was sort of isolated at that moment. And a woman <clears throat> starts walking up the stairs toward me, a little lady, as I remembered, and she was kind of covered over, but I could tell she was young, and uh, as she was walking toward me, I realized uh, she's walking right toward me. She's not walking up toward the... She's walking right toward me. And that makes me nervous because I'm threatened by little women. <laughs> she gets within about three steps of me, and she's still ten feet below me. <clears throat> and she looks up, <clears throat> and in the sweetest voice I think I've ever heard, she said to me, Mr., could I sing you a song? Well, I was so threatened by that. I really was. I was completely unnerved by that. That I turned away, hoping she would disappear. And she stood there for another few seconds. And then slowly, and I thought a bit sadly, walked away. Which is the weirdest thing in the world because I have always said, I've always wanted someone to write me a song. And sing me a song. I've always wanted that. And now when it's sent to me, I don't take it. Why didn't I take it? Well, what if she's going to rob me? What if she's going to mug me? What if, what if she sings off key? Isn't it amazing what our minds can make up about how things can go wrong? And so we're not even open to the possibility of the grace of God coming up right in front of us, offering all this love to us, and we're going, yeah, but maybe this isn't the right time, isn't the right place, it's not going to work, they're going to sing off key, I might be in danger here. And by the time I get through arguing with myself, the opportunity is gone and the window has closed. And uh, I've pushed grace away yet again. But that's the best that God has to offer. And it is my deepest need. And it is my deepest longing. And it will fulfill me at a very, very deep level. Why won't I receive this love? And to make sure we get it and to make sure that it's it's real, Jesus comes himself in person. The Father sends the Son. And that story is called the Gospel. Grace, Savior, Gospel. What is the Gospel? The Gospel's 
the story. The gospel's the, the good news. The gospel in the ancient world was what you would hear when the Caesar or the king had a son. And there would be a herald who would walk around and say, <clears throat> I have news for you. It is such good news. And like the angels once said, it's good news of great joy. The king has had a son, and he has been born to us. <clears throat> and everybody would cheer until they remembered who the king is. And if the son is anything like the king, this ain't good news. On the human level, on the political level. But this is God. And if he has a son, and this son is sent to us, and represents the very person of God and the very intention of God. Wow, this is good news. Does God care that much to come this distance? And now I get to take all this in, and I'm waiting on the edge of my seat for this news. And this news includes the story of his coming and of his life and of his ministry. And look at all of the ways in which the ministry of Jesus is characterized by this radical expression of grace. Look at the people that he related to and cared about. And, and uh, um, he was just all over them with God's grace, with God's loving kindness. You're saying, yeah, but he had arguments with some people. He got a little bit angry with those religious people. Well, why did he? You want to make God mad? Get between him and the people he's trying to love. Jesus once said to these so-called Pharisees, these religious leaders, these hypocrites, as he called them, he said, you won't enter the kingdom of God, you won't take in God's grace, and you won't let others go in either. And that's why he got so spitting mad. And we want him to, because these barriers have to come down. And the very people who are supposed to be representing God's grace become anti-grace. God forbid that should ever happen to us that we would ever do anything to demoralize someone who is searching, to put up a barrier instead of bring it down so that people can experience God's grace. And it's so improbable and it's so unlikely. And we're not certain they deserve to hear about it. And so the gospel gets muted even by us because we're not receiving it, we're not living it, and yet we're using the words. Not enough to use the words. Not enough. And so Paul talks about himself as a herald, which means he's the one who announces the good news. By the way, I'm on the edge of my seat today, as is my dad sitting over here. He literally is on the edge of his seat because he's sitting down. We are waiting for news. This news is going to come to us tomorrow morning because our son's wife is about to deliver a baby, and they're inducing labor tomorrow morning. They're going into the hospital at 6 a.m. Nancy is there right now. Grandma is there right now. And we're on the edge of our seat waiting for this good news. And if my phone went off right now, I would leave you and I would go hear the news. It's that important. I would stop caring about you and stop caring about this service because that good news means that much to me. I mean, when there is good news in the midst of so much bad news, that seems to just, you know, if you open the newspaper and look at the headlines, it just seems like, what in the world? Is there any good news anywhere? Anything that, that stays good news? Something that, that I can count on? And Paul says, yes, here it is. The birth of the king's son. Uh, a great victory has been won. And by the way, it's all a gift to you. This victory is yours. 
The victory of God in Christ is now your victory. You get it. And I'm an apostle, which means what? That Paul is sent around, and Timothy is now going to be sent around, and the new generation is going to be sent around because the Gentiles, the outsiders, need to hear about this good news. It isn't just for us, for us in this club, whatever this club is. It's for everybody. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's going all the way outside. And there's an urgency about this. Wouldn't you agree? There was a mission team that went to a place that had never heard the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Christ and how his grace has been delivered into our sad, sick, lost world. But they got there. It took them a while to get there, but they finally got there, and there was a huge response from people who were living with a lot of fear. And this gospel broke the spell of that fear, and all kinds of people came to put their faith and their trust in Christ. And they had kind of a celebration before the mission team left. And the celebration was going really well until one man kind of shouted down the whole, the whole group, the whole gathering. And he said, wait a minute. I understand why you're celebrating, but I'm angry today. And the, and, and the mission team leader was a little confused because this was one of the guys who, who came to Christ. He said, well, wait a minute. Okay, stop the music for a second. What, what are you angry about? Isn't this good news to you? He says, oh, it's really good news to you. He said, when did you hear the call to come when did God tell you to come? Well, God, God's been telling us for a while to come. We weren't able to get here until now. And he said, but my father died a year ago. He didn't get to hear this. Why did you delay? Why did you take longer? Why couldn't you be here? And he just, he almost hit the missionary, the risk of being a missionary, from someone who appreciated it so much, wasn't against it, but recognized the value of it and said, why were you so slow in coming? As I heard that story, I thought about the people I haven't necessarily shared God's grace with yet. I'm biding my time, you know. Um, it's, got, it's got to be the, the right time. It's got to be convenient. And I'm not talking about preaching a sermon, okay? I'm not talking about having a confrontation I'm talking about being as intentional as God is about treating them in a gracious way that is a living out of the gospel that demands explanation and ultimately a conversation about what's going on here. And uh, it's obviously possible to wait too long. There's an urgency about this. To be an apostle is to be sent. I don't know who, to whom you're sent today or tomorrow, but if you have this good news, if you're getting this in your system, if God's love is now part of your identity and has defined you, you've got to share this. But people can resist it, can't they? Of course. It's like walking up and offering to sing somebody a song. They may turn away. But fortunately, from God's point of view, your first no is not your last answer. God keeps coming after us. That's part of his grace. He just keeps coming after us. He cuts across our path. He drops, drops hints 
of this grace, of this blessing all over the place. In fact, whether you're a believer or not, you get the blessing of living under the reign of God. God who has created all this and he's done it for you. And you may or may not recognize that, but he will keep dropping hints. And you and I are supposed to be the biggest hint of all. Because people who have been claimed by grace, and by the way, I want you to think of it that way. I don't want you to think of grace as, okay, it's a permission slip now to live any way you want to. It's not that at all. It's grace. It's a gift. Yes, it's a gift. It's unconditional love. Yes, it is unconditional. But it claims you. And it will transform you. It will turn you into somebody that will be pleasing to God. And only God can do that. That releases me, by the way, when I share God's grace, I don't have to make you into anything. It's not my responsibility. If I start doing that, I'll become manipulative or coercive or I'll have my own agenda and that will intrude. I'm supposed to show you, display to you, God's gracious love. And what you do with that and how he works with you in that, that's up to you and that's up to him. And to trust him with that. So Paul's a herald, he's an apostle, he's a teacher, he says. He's going to explain this grace. And uh, how do you explain it? I mean, I'm making my, my valiant attempt right now to explain what this is. I have a friend, she's a new friend. I've been meeting with her over breakfast for maybe two years now or a few months. We'll meet together. And um, we're having this interesting conversation because she's Mormon, okay? And I'm evangelical. So we have this conversation And we found, of course, a lot in common, a lot in common because we're human beings, a lot in common because we care about God, a lot in common because we believe in Jesus. And we know that there are differences. And so the last time we met for breakfast, she said, I have a question for you. I'm waiting. Okay, I'm waiting for a theological question. And and, and I'm waiting to get to these differences because I, I would love to discuss those. And I'm concerned about some of them. I think they're significant. But I love her heart, and I love her quest, and she's after, you know, all that God has for her. I said, what is your question? She said, my question is this. Why do so many Christians hate Mormons? And that question was like a stab in my chest. Why do so many Christians hate Mormons? Now, you could turn that sentence into anything you want. Why do so many Christians hate blank? There shouldn't be any hate in us at all. I'm not talking about compromising your convictions or changing your faith. I'm talking about the way you treat people. That can't happen if you've been touched by the grace of God. All you can do is give out grace. And I was just so hurt, and I said, well, I, I, I want to talk about that, but first of all, let me just apologize on behalf of my fellow Christians who have given you the impression somehow that they, that we hate you. We cannot do that. As followers of Christ, how could we ever do that? You know, at one point, Jesus came to a town. It was in Samaria. And the Samaritans resisted the gospel. They weren't hospitable. They weren't responsive. And the disciples said what to Jesus? Can we call down fire from heaven and destroy them? Now, that's a cool ministry, don't you think? (laughs) Calling down fire from heaven, that's my gift. Let's destroy people. Let's make sure how much they know how much we hate them. 
Let's make sure we know how they know how unacceptable they are and their behavior is to God. Let's pile on. They're miserable already. Let's make sure they're really miserable. Let's make sure this is ended. Let's make sure that the grace of God isn't coming to this town now and never will come to this town because they are all destroyed. You know that phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin? You know that phrase? Do you use that phrase? I'm a little uncomfortable with that phrase. I like the first part. The second part, hate the sin. Somehow the word hate, it's a little bit like if somebody came up to me and said, Doug, I really, really like you. And I'm kind of leaning forward. And then they say, but a lot of the things that you do really make me sick. And there's kind of a mixed message there. Um, I'm getting the feeling you're pretty uncomfortable with me and don't really want to be around me, but you've sort of made a hypothetical decision to love me. It's just that in all practical manners, you don't want to have anything to do with me. Let me read you something that I think is maybe an interesting alternative on that. Here's what he said. Love the sinner, hate the sin. How about love the sinner, hate your own sin? I don't have time to hate your sin. There are too many of you. Hating my sin is a full-time job. How about you hate your sin, I'll hate my sin, and let's just love others, each other. You hate your sin, I'll hate my sin. Let's just love each other. Um, that word hate right now, which is all, part of the rhetoric of, of our time and of our culture and the culture wars that are going on, um, I think we have to drop that out of our vocabulary. And more importantly, bleed it entirely out of our heart and fill up our hearts with the grace of God towards sinners. Paul's the chief of all sinners, he says. He is so convinced of this grace, what does he do? He is a witness who is willing to suffer for this gospel. He'll do whatever it takes, including endure the wrath of somebody who doesn't want to hear it somebody who wants to sabotage Paul and his ministry. He'll suffer for that. And he is. He's in prison. He's about to die. He's about to be executed. It's all right. The grace of God is worth it. It has changed my life. And I know that even this death that I'm facing is not the end for me because the grace of God is so powerful, it has even overcome death. It is victory to that level. And so the next generation, Timothy, and all of you, all of us, are handed off this grace and the story of this grace, which is grace personified in Jesus Christ, comes across in a gospel, in good news that we have to live, that we have to speak, that we have to demonstrate, that we have to experience. And I think our job, our calling, is to become a host of a celebration of God's grace. You're a host creating the occasion for someone else to celebrate the grace of God. Are you ready for that? That's what's being handed to you. That's what the Word of God is challenging you and me to do with this. By God's grace. Let's pray.